Bibles, if you would please, and open them to the epistle of 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Verse number 2 is the text that I want to consider this evening. Uh, we'll start with verse number 1, and then verse number 2 will be the text verse. So if you look in 1 John chapter 2, verse number 1. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. First thing I'd like to do before I begin the message tonight is to commend those of you that come on to Wednesday night services. I'm glad that you're here. I I don't try to differentiate too much between the types of preaching that I do on Sunday morning and Sunday evenings and Wednesday nights. I honestly do try, uh, spend my time trying to dig down into the scriptures and find out the meaning of what's here. So I don't know that you'd classify one service necessarily as being easier than another. I, I used to make a big difference between the Sunday morning preaching and other services because we have more visitors on Sunday mornings. And so I thought, well, things need to be maybe a little bit easier. But since we started in the Gospel of Matthew on Sundays, I did not want to slight the text at all. And so the preaching on Sunday mornings is much like you get right here. Uh, There's the preaching aspect of it, but there's also a teaching element that I think is very important. But if there is a service that becomes a little bit more doctrinal and well, maybe sometimes a little bit more technical, it would be this one. And so I commend you for coming to the service because there are many people that just don't want the details. All they want to do is come and hear that Jesus loves you, and then they're good to go. Well, when we come to a verse like 1 John chapter 2, verse number 2, we can't stop with Jesus loves me. Because here we're getting into the inner workings of salvation. Here we begin to learn things about God. And we start to see how that God very carefully follows a plan that was laid out from the beginning. It's too easy for preachers to lift a scripture out of the the context that it's in or just take that scripture and lightly brush over it. And you would never know that there's probably more there, a much broader lesson to be learned and deeper than was first supposed. And so in in many of the churches today, the preaching is very simplified. You get a salvation message where sinners are invited to come to Christ, and they're told that salvation is nothing more than a decision, that God has forgiven everybody, and uh, their sins are gone. Uh, God has his hand open with a gift, and all that you need to do is accept that gift. And if you don't accept it, then God can't do anything. His hands are tied, and so... It's all up to you to take that gift. And from there, it's as simple as walking down the aisle and and kneeling at the altar, and a Christian worker comes by and gives you a card to sign, and then they tell you that you're good to go. Do you know that 150 years ago that the gospel of Christ was never preached in that way? There are no requirements, it seems today, with the preaching of the gospel. There's nothing to do. The evangelist says, sign the card, as I said, go on your way. And he tells you, don't let anybody tell you otherwise, that that you're saved, and and don't let anybody tell you that you're not. 
John Bunyan, who was the author of the second best-selling book of all time, Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? Oh, good. Well, then you know Pilgrim's Progress is uh, an allegory about salvation, about coming to Christ, and it talks about the hindrances that there are to belief and the pitfalls that are in the Christian life. But many people don't know about other things that John Bunyan wrote. One of the books he wrote was Holy War, and sometime you might want to get a copy of that. But he also wrote a book that was called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And did you know that when John Bunyan wrote that, he said that he agonized for 18 months over the issue of repentance from sin. Churches rush people down the aisles. They never talk about repentance. John the Baptist, if you remember when he was preaching, told people that before he would baptize them, they had to bring forth fruits to show that they'd actually repented of their sins. And so before revivalists like Charles Finney and Dwight Moody and Billy Sunday and Billy Graham, uh, salvation was never offered as cheap, easy grace. There were no invitations given when churches where pure preaching of the gospel was replaced with, uh, did not have a demand for contrition from sin, a determination to follow Christ. But all of that's been replaced with these crying, pleading sermons and invitations where Jesus wants to save you, so please don't disappoint Jesus. And that goes on for 20 or 30 minutes sometimes. Arthur Pink made a statement that would stun many evangelical Christians today. He said, Certain it is, my reader, that any preacher who rejects God's law, who denies repentance to be a condition of salvation, who assures the giddy and the godless that they are loved by God, who declares that saving faith is nothing more than an act of the will which every person has the power to perform, is a false prophet and should be shunned as a deadly plague. And yet that's what we're facing in our pulpits today. So when we come to scriptures like 1 John 2 verse 2, you can well imagine that the full meaning of this is never going to be explored. The doctrine that's here is going to be shoved aside. Well, the message that I want to preach to you over the next four weeks is the sacrifice that really satisfied. We're going to look at this second verse for four weeks And this is a message about how that Christ has completed a real redemption for real people. He actually did satisfy God for their sins. And you might think that good Bible-believing Christians, everybody believes that. But the truth is there are very few people that preach that from their pulpits. Now, over the next four weeks, you're going to have to stick close to me and stay with me because... These four sermons are all tied together. They're going to build on each other. And we're going to explore what John means by this statement. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Now for many weeks, the subject that we have been talking about is sin. We looked at chapter 1 where uh, John deals with the issue based upon, first of all, the false claims that people made about sin. I mean, there were false teachers that were in the church. The Christian people there were very confused about this. Some people said that it was all right to sin. You can go on sinning and you can still have fellowship with God. And to those people, John said, that is impossible. You can't fellowship with God and continue to live in sin. And then there were some that said, well, all right, well, we're saved now. And so we've conquered our sin nature. And so now we don't sin. And John said, you're wrong about that too. If you say that you don't sin after you're saved, then you've just deceived yourself. And then there was another group that was 
in more serious shape. They said, we've never sinned. And what they were doing was saying there is no sinful nature, so they didn't sin. And to that, John replied, if you teach that there is no sin nature, then you call God a liar and his word is not in you. So there's this problem of sin. You can't have sin and fellowship with God, and yet it's still true that Christians still sin. So how do you have fellowship with God? Well, that seems hopeless. And it seems like what John is saying here is that sin is inevitable. You just have to live with sin and just go on. It's a fact of life. But then we find that that's not the case because he begins chapter 2, verse number 1, with, I write these things so that you don't sin. You have to strive not to sin. But you need to understand that when you do sin, Christ is in heaven advocating for you. So Christ stands in heaven interceding on your behalf, and he claims the blood that he has shed as the basis for your forgiveness. Now, as we go into verse number 2, John gives us the reason why Christ can deflect sin from ruining your relationship with God. And he says that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. And that statement is going to occupy us for these few messages. What does it mean that Christ is the propitiation for our sins? Now, let me just give you a quick answer, uh, which will be the point that we're finally going to prove when we get down to the end of the message, but it also happens to be the point that we're going to start out with. And that is that Christ satisfied God for sin. And he didn't do it potentially. He didn't do it hypothetically. It's not dormant waiting on you to activate it. Christ satisfied God for the believer's sins. And the real result is that it has an effect on those for whom Christ died. Now, first of all, then, we're talking about the satisfaction of Christ. In verse number 1, John said that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And we spent a good deal of time dealing with Christ's advocacy. We have a defense lawyer in heaven. Now, many people don't believe there will be any lawyers in heaven. Um, But I know one who's not crooked, and he will be there. And this lawyer knows all the ins and outs of every requirement of God's law. And he has pledged to faithfully uphold every law that God has given. Now, probably the last thing that you'd want to happen is for you to go go to court and your lawyer stands before the judge and he says, Your Honor, my client is guilty. He did everything that he's accused of. But that's what our lawyer does. He always tells the truth. So he's not going to plead our innocence. He acknowledges before the judge that we are guilty. So that's first. He admits our sinfulness. We don't go into God's courtroom hoping that we won't be found guilty. That'd be a little bit trite for me to say we're as guilty as sin, but that's exactly what we are. We're as guilty as sin. We're definitely guilty. And that's the huge problem that we face. Now, the truth of the matter is, though, you would never make it that far for Christ to advocate for you on your behalf if you had not already admitted that fact. You have to admit that you're a sinner because Christ takes no clients who have not admitted their guilt. So when you go into the courtroom... Christ doesn't take you if you haven't admitted the guilt because he's going to have to admit your guilt. So every person that appears there has been already made sensible of the transgressions that they've made against God. And that's because the Holy Spirit has convicted them of their sins. The Holy Spirit has opened the sinner's eyes to his condition. And once that sin is exposed, we're never going to say that we're anything other than a vile, guilty sinner. Now, the second part of the advocate's work is that he accepts God's standard. 
He admits our guilt, and he knows God's standard. God is perfect, and he's holy, and he only has one standard for us to live by, and that's perfection. And nothing short of complete holiness will ever be accepted. Sin offends God. Now, I don't know how to make this easy for you, but our sins anger God. And I don't just mean he's a little bit aggravated by it. I mean he's full of wrath because of our sins. I'm not going to take time to go into all the passages of Scripture that deal with God's wrath because we'd be here for a long, long time. But suffice it to say, the Scripture says all of us have sinned. We've all come short of the glory of God. And God is so angry about it that the only way that his wrath will ever be calmed is that Christ should give his life to take our sins away. It's the only thing he counts on, nothing else. So God is seething over sin. He's prepared hell for sinners, and no one dare for a moment believe that they could actually themselves offer anything to God that would appease his wrath. Even the suggestion that you could actually do something for your own salvation, that you could bring something as an offering to God... Even that suggestion makes God even angrier. Because every time that someone sells themselves on self and self-help, it spits on the sacrifice of Christ. I'm going to go a little bit off the subject here, but the notion that there is a purgatory that can purge people from their sins after they die tramples on the blood of Jesus Christ. So what I'm trying to get across here is that the wrath of God has to be taken away. And so when John says Christ is the propitiation for our sins, that's what he means. God's wrath must be appeased. That's what propitiation is about. And his offering on the cross is what satisfied God for sin and took God's wrath away. And so when Christ advocates in heaven, he points back to that offering of the cross where the blood was shed... And that satisfies God. And that's, again, what propitiation means. It means to satisfy the wrath of God. Now, let me throw in something here that that should be apparent to anybody who diligently diligently looks into this matter. If you want to contemplate the significance of the statement that Christ has satisfied God for sin, if God is satisfied by Christ's work on the cross and that work was done in the behalf of sinners, that means that there cannot be one sinner for whom Christ died, that would spend eternity in hell. Now, we're boarding on blasphemy to say that the sacrifice of Christ appeased God's wrath, but that God disregards the sacrifice and sends people to hell anyway. Now, I want you to file that thought away. You might want to write that one down, save it, because it's going to be very significant when we come to the end of these sermons when we look at the worth and the extent of the atonement. Now, let's look a little bit more, though, about this first part. When John uses the word propitiation, we now have an inescapable conclusion that God is wrathful. You can't appease wrath that there is none. And John was speaking to this, this to people that were very much aware of what it meant to make sacrifices. And it's important to know that when he speaks this word propitiation, he's actually speaking to the Jewish mindset. And I'm going to show you next week how that propitiation has a distinctively Jewish character to it, the way that John is using it here, because the word has tabernacle connections. But we also know that this very same word, propitiation, is found in other cultures. Pagans had the idea that their gods were angry and they had to be appeased, and so they also made sacrifices. Only the sacrifices that they made were not for the atonement of sins. Their gods were just angry. But whatever caused their gods were angry, they, were, uh, they, they had to placate these capricious gods. 
And so their gods were angry and to satisfy them, often what they would do is they would make human sacrifices. In the Old Testament, you'll find examples of heathens sacrificing their children, making them pass through the fires, what the Bible calls it. Leviticus 18.21 says, And thou shalt not let any of thy seed pass through the fire to Molech, neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God, I am the Lord. When Israel was carried away captive into Assyria, the cause was the rejecting of God's commandments and especially the commandment against idolatry and specifically of human sacrifice. They sacrificed their children. Listen to Second Kings 17. And they left all the commandments of the Lord their God and made them molten images, even two calves, and made a grove and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire and used divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. So pagans would make sacrifices to appease their gods, but when Israel made sacrifices, it was for a different reason. Their sacrifices were made as a token of the atonement for their sins. Now, those sacrifices that they made couldn't really take away their sins, and so they had to make them over and over again precisely because they couldn't take away sin. Hebrews says in in chapter 10, And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But the idea is that sacrifices made throughout the Old Testament needed to be made. They weren't permanent in any way. And so thus they couldn't have satisfied the wrath of God against sin. And the extremely important part to note about that is that in the act of offering a sacrifice, even the best that you could offer, even, even with the utmost care, it would still not be a perfect sacrifice. Sacrifices made by men are always imperfect. But the contrast to this, and you've got to get this in your brain to understand why this is all going to work. The contrast to all of that is that Christ's sacrifice is perfection. It does take away sin. It does satisfy God. And so nothing ever needs to be added to it. The sacrifice of Christ stands alone. Now, it's so important in reflection upon John's statement that Christ is the propitiation for sin because Christ is not offered by human hands. God is never satisfied with the sacrifices of men. And so the only way that he could be satisfied is to make a sacrifice himself. It was God that sacrificed Christ. Now, we've been reading from Hebrews, so turn there for yourself, and we're going to look in the seventh chapter and read a few verses here. And in the seventh chapter, the argument in Hebrews 7 is about the imperfection of the Levitical priesthood and the sacrifices. And the scripture says that the priesthood was established by the law. So if you look at verse number 19 in Hebrews 7, it says, For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. So the law can't make anyone perfect because the law was never designed to do that. The law was designed to point us to Christ. It was to show us that we can't be perfect. We always fail. There is no hope in ourselves. And so we need a better hope. Now, you skip down to verse number 23. And I hope that you read all of this and, 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 and take some time to do that. Go home and be Bereans and do some reading. But Hebrews 7 verse 23 says, And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. In other words, the priests died 
You had to have a new one every so often because priests die. But this man, speaking of Christ, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. So there it's telling us that Christ is not a sacrifice offered by others. He offered himself. And that is the same thing as saying God sacrificed God. So John 3.16, as you know, says that, that God gave his son. And Jesus said, I came to do the Father's will. And again, in Hebrews uh, chapter 8, verse number 6, it says, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. And that better covenant that's been established is a new covenant not between us and God, The covenant is between the Father and the Son in which there is agreement that the Son's death is the means of satisfying God's wrath for sin. So there's there's lots, lots of confusing heresy taught about the sacrifice of Christ. We don't satisfy God for sin. And so every preacher, every priest, every religion that says that there is some merit in your own work for sin... Anybody who says that it's possible for you to be saved and then lose your salvation, they are actually denying that the blood atonement of Christ satisfied God for sin. So they're actually saying that Christ is not a full propitiatory sacrifice. But then you have others that say, well, that's not right. Of course, the the sacrifice of Christ was fully propitious. And yet at the same time, they say that There are some people that Christ died for that go to hell. Well, that would be the same thing as saying that God was not satisfied by Christ's sacrifice. And then there's another heresy. And this one, um, the people that, that I just mentioned before are good Christian people. They're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. They're confused about this issue. But there are some that are they're not, not confused. They're plain out heretics. The Word of Faith movement, for instance, that has people in it like Kenneth Copeland actually believe that Satan is the one that was propitiated. That God had to satisfy Satan for sin. How do you tell when somebody like that's lying? They open their mouths. Well, far from the sacrifice like pagans made, it was God that offered up Christ. Now, Peter explained that to the Jews at Pentecost... The Jews and the Romans are actually the ones that marched Jesus to the cross. They beat him. They drove the nails into his hands and his feet. They're the ones that raised the cross and dropped it into the hole. But they were only God's instruments. God put Christ there. Listen to this exchange that took place between Pilate and Jesus in John 19. Then saith Pilate unto him, to Jesus, speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Now that's an interesting exchange because when Jesus said, He that delivered me hath the greater sin, he meant Judas that handed him over, and he meant the scribes and the Pharisees that were complicit in his death and should have known better. Now, Jesus says to Pilate, 
Their sin is greater than yours. You, 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 you don't know about these things. They have rejected me as their Messiah. But actually, none of them had the ultimate power against him because it was God that sacrificed Christ. Now, both of those angles help us to understand Peter's statement at Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, it says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So they were the instruments that God used to crucify him. See, God doesn't make crosses, and God doesn't drive nails. He uses human instrumentality, and he used that to make his sacrifice. But as it says here, that's all done by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. Now, sometimes when we're preaching, we like to make points that personalize the death of Christ. And so we might say something like, "'Who crucified Christ?' And I would say, well, you and I crucified Christ because it was our sins that that nailed Jesus to the cross. Our sins put him there. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. If we have in mind what Peter said, the Jews crucified Christ, and he told them that, but God determined that it would be so. And it wouldn't have happened unless God granted them the power to do it. But if you really want to look at the real theology behind it, the part that really makes God shine in this glorious plan from eternity past to eternity future, you have to say God crucified his son. God gave his own sacrifice, and so God won't take yours. He won't take any personal efforts. And if you try, it means that you're desecrating God's sacrifice. Only God can satisfy God. Well, there's one more thought that I want to get in before we close tonight. I've said a lot about God's wrath. And sometimes when, preacher, when people hear me preach, they think, well, he never did know anything about God's love. On the other hand, you listen to other preachers and you think they never knew anything about God's wrath. But I will tell you this, you will never understand God's love until you understand what had to be overcome for God to love you. I mean, for God to save you. You, you have to know what's been overcome. Now... That's an interesting thought, I think, to look at it this way. Could you be a spiritual Christian, a good spiritual Christian, if you go to a church that never speaks of God's wrath? Could you be a good spiritual Christian and do that? Well, I don't think so. Because no matter how much that you talk about God's love, you won't know what that means until you understand God's wrath. Now, here's what could have happened. God is angry about sin. And so we think, well, what a wonderful thing. God loved us so much that he gave his own sacrifice. So what God could have done, we would think, suppose God should choose an angel. There are theological complications that are associated with that, but we're talking about God here. So we say, well, God can do anything. So what is, let's suppose for a moment that he offered an angel. What if God had a different plan and the offering was an angel? Well, God would still be a God of love, wouldn't he? I mean, if he gave an angel, he'd still be a God of love because he could have let us go to hell without any kind of offering for sin. I mean, he could have just let us go. And, he, and so the act of providing an angel to die for our sins would also be a gracious act of the love of God. But if that's what God did, then we'd never get close to the depths of God's real love. You see, a propitiator 
or propitiator does not have to choose himself. I mean, especially if he's the one that sets the parameters about how sin is going to be satisfied, he certainly doesn't have to choose himself. And so the most magnanimous display of God's love is that he chose himself. He chose his own son, God, and he didn't lessen the penalty that was imposed upon him. He didn't turn down the thermostat on hell because it was his son and make it more bearable. But instead, when God gave himself, the full fury of his wrath was thrown against Christ. God bore down on him full throttle. And when he darkened the world for that time that Jesus was hanging on the cross, he experienced, Jesus experienced the worst fury of hell. He experienced the hottest part of hell. And how do we know that? Because doesn't the Bible say, didn't Paul say, that he died for the chief of sinners? And Paul said, I'm him. Now, I don't know if maybe Paul was the worst of all sinners. He thought that he was. But at least we do know this, that Jesus took the hottest part of hell for the worst of sinners because he had to pay for the sin of that person who believed. And so only by looking at this picture, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Only by looking at that picture do you see the real love of God. And so, no, you couldn't be a good, spiritual, knowledgeable Christian if you went to a church that never preached about hell. And so when John says, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, then what we see, first of all, here is that Jesus and Jesus alone satisfied God's wrath. It was real. This is not hypothetical. It's not a possibility. It's not something that's held in prospect. This is real satisfaction to God. God is satisfied with Christ for everyone that Christ came to save. And that's what we're going to explain. How does all that work? And how does the Bible prove that statement? That God is satisfied with Christ for everyone he came to save. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look in your word tonight. Lord, over these next few weeks as we look at the scriptures that support what we've talked about this evening, I know that there will be some who will disagree, and some who can't see it at first, and, but we endeavor by the help of the Holy Spirit to be able to show that Christ made a sacrifice that was perfect that he did everything that he intended to do. He, he did not fail in any sense of the word. But his sacrifice actually satisfied you for sin. Bless our people as we try to understand your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.